0: We are kind of right in the middle of our series in the book of Colossians, so turn to chapter 2. We're going to look at most of chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. My guess is someone will bring you a Bible. Colossians chapter 2. Sometimes, and I think we've seen this recently, Sometimes good intentions don't always turn out to turn out with good outcomes. Have you noticed this? We're seeing this on the news all the time. We see this, I think, kind of especially in the courtroom. You hear men and women say things like, "I just really didn't intend to hurt anyone." Sort of any idea can get out of hand, can't it? Slowly someone can just get carried away in their passion, in their zeal, in their excitement for an idea, and then wake up one day and realize that they've been swept away by the idea. I think we see that often when we turn on the news, think of protests wherever they are. It's filled with men and women who got swept away with an idea. In their zeal and their excitement, they showed up thinking maybe this was going to be just a peaceful protest that then ends up. And they realized that in their zeal, in their passion, in their excitement, they just got swept away in the moment. This can happen spiritually too. We can be so zealous for God, so interested in sort of deeper things that we can do all sorts of crazy things, right? We can be on fire for Jesus, but we can get swept away in that zeal. Just because you have good intentions doesn't mean you always lead to perfect or righteous outcomes. So my question to you this morning is this. Do you want to go deeper with God this this season in your life? I mean, I hope so. Well, how do you do that without getting swept away into all sorts of spiritual weird practices? How do you actually go deeper with God? This morning, I'm going to give you, I'm going to be sort of negative this morning, okay? Because the text is sort of negative, okay? I'm going to give you four ways how not to go deeper with God, all right? Four ways in which you can kind of get swept away in your zeal into all sorts of of craziness, and then I'm just going to give you simply one way, one simple money-back guarantee, full-proof method of going deeper with God. So every week I try to give you the big idea. We're going to look at verse 6 to verse 23, and the big idea, which should be behind me, is simply this. Don't be swept away by false teaching. Instead, walk with Christ. Christ. I'm going to read all this uh, text, and then we'll kind of slowly work our way through it, starting in verse six. Therefore, again, Paul's continually talking. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human, t- according to human. Tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful work. Working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment over you. In questions of food and drink, or with regard to festivals or new moon or Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puff up without reason by sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and it together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Make sense? Amen? Man, Paul loved a comma, didn't he? Okay, so in chapter 2, we have the text, in many ways, is broken up into four warnings. Four warnings about how not to go deeper with God. You kind of, I I hope you saw them um, when I read through it. You you see the first one in verse 8, then verse 16, then in verse 18, then in verse 20. So, so we're going to work our way through these four warnings. So that first warning, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. Now, this first warning, Paul isn't against philosophy per se. All right? Philosophy literally means love of wisdom. Christians, all throughout the centuries, are lovers of wisdom. We want to pursue lady wisdom, which is how she's personified in the Old Testament. Right? We are people who love wisdom and want to grow in wisdom. So, so Paul's not saying, don't read Plato. What, what, what Paul is warning is sort of the, 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 the human heart or the human tendency to take philosophy and then be swept away with philosophy. Did you guys notice the, the, the sort of imagery Paul evokes here in verse 8? Right? Captive, right? This, this is the imagery of being kidnapped. Being kidnapped by a philosophy that doesn't accord with Christ. Um, I moved up here with my wife and uh, our family three years ago. And in Oregon, in sort of central Oregon, there is a young life camp that is beautiful. Okay? But before Young Life owned this camp, it was owned by a cult. All right? If you know anything about cults in Central Oregon, this cult was called, loosely, the, the Rajanish. It was weird. It was odd. It ha- did all sorts of weird stuff. Okay, But, but, but the point of it is, it, it sort of promised a utopian society. It, it promised you know all the world and corruption. No, we're going to be a loving, free, great utopian society. Well, I think one of the interesting things about this cult isn't that it had sort of a funky theological utopianism. We've seen that from time to time. The really interesting thing about this cult in Central Oregon was just the broad appeal of it. The interesting thing is just all of the people, the men, women, and families, who sold everything and went to join it. Right? These were normal people, like lawyers, lawyers, Doctors, soccer moms who drive vans. These were just normal people sold everything in order to move out and be a part of this cult. They were kidnapped for decades by this philosophy. And it can happen to the church as well. Right? The, the church also can be kidnapped by philosophies that sound great, that sound wonderful, but then you wake up one day and think, Was that in accordance with Christ? One of the best-selling business books, leadership books of all time, is a book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. My guess is some of you know this book. Now, Collins, he's attempting, broadly speaking, his sort of thesis is to show how companies can build a culture and go from good to great, hence the title. Now, there's some good stuff in there, I assure you. And yet, one of the chapters, and one of his main points is, if you want to go from good to great, he points out that that most companies that have that greatness to them have CEOs or leaders who are humble. And so he says, if you want to be great, if you want a great company, if you want to be a great leader, the ticket is humility. Now, we would stand here as Christians and go, That kind of sounds in accordance with Christianity, right? Humble leadership, that's a good thing. But is that how the New Testament generally and Jesus in particular talks about greatness? That 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 greatness can be had, and the vehicle that you need to get into in order on, on your kind of journey to greatness is humility. So clothe yourself in humility, and then you'll have money, wealth, greatness. Do you remember the sons of thunder? Right? The, the, two of the disciples of, of Jesus come to Jesus and say, we want to be great. We want to see glory. We want to know how to go from good to great. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, look at my life. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. And basically what Jesus is saying is, you want to look what, look in the face of greatness or you want to know what true greatness is? Humility isn't a means to get there. Actually, humility is what greatness looks like. Being humble for humble sake. Even what it means dying. Humility isn't the ticket to greatness. Humility is greatness. You see how easily sort of wisdom, knowledge can, in one sense, kind of parade itself. We can look at it and go, oh, that's wonderful. But then we can slowly be kind of drifted apart. I mean, we all want to be great. There's, there's a wonderful tendency to be great. The question is, how? Or the question is, is that all that life is about, is being great? And so here we have these teachers promising some deeper intimacy with God, some deeper experience with God by some human tradition, by knowledge, by some deeper spirituality and philosophy. But at the end of the day, that philosophy, that deeper truths, it it really didn't accord with Christ. Which in that sense, I think we need to be good Bereans, right? I I don't think the helpful thing as it relates to this knowledge, I don't think the goal is don't read secular books, don't listen to secular music. That's 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 not the application. The application is, don't needlessly, mindlessly consume culture. Instead, critique culture in a Christ-centered, Bible-saturated way, right? As you engage culture, which is inevitable, right? You can't live apart from engaging with culture. But as you engage culture, the question is, how can you do so, so saturated with the Bible, so, so centrally, um, you're centralizing your entire life on Christ, that you don't just consume it, you think... Does this message in these lyrics accord with Christ? How do I throw this out but take this? Or this this movie that comes, how do I think about it? Right? In my opinion, great parenting isn't never watch Disney. I think great parenting is watch Disney and then talk about it with your kids. Because there's a message And the question is, how can we think about this message and engage in that message and do so so that we're not captivated and swept away by the message? And I think we also do this in community. I mean, just sitting here right here is a wealth of wisdom that we should share and encourage each other. But at the end of the day, all of our collective wisdom, what we need to do... And what Paul's communicating and encouraging us to do is to take our wisdom and then submit it to God and his word with our hands open saying, is this in accordance with Christ? So first, right, this, this warning about going deeper uh, with God but, but doing so in a way that's kind of uh, wisdom not in conjunction with Christ, that's just a fool's errand. It's not helpful. That's a misstep. That's the first. But then second, go, go to verse 16. This is, the, this is the second warning. We read this. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals or new moon or Sabbath. So, evidently, whatever this false teaching was, and, and again, I don't think we know exactly. We get sort of the flavor of it, but we don't know the exact meal. But whatever it was, there was a... a a strong Jewish component to it. And so these teachers were saying, okay, you want to go deeper with God? We've got the ticket, okay? Right? If you obey the Old Testament dietary laws and many of the other laws, that's how you go deeper with God. It's all about following the festivals and the dietary code. And as you do that, well, you're going to go deeper with God. And in many ways... Here's Paul's warning against what we sort of have called the idea of legalism, right? Going deeper with God, experiencing a deepness with God by using the law in ways the law was never intent or was not purposed for us. Because the Old Testament laws, they're not bad. They were good. The Old Testament festivals, good. Sabbath, good. All of it was good. But it was all given in a particular time for a particular purpose within a context of redemptive history. And that's Paul's point. If you just keep reading, right? Paul continues to write, the Old Testament laws are shadows of the, of the, of the thing to come. The substance of which is Christ. Right? There's nothing wrong with the Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with drinking a glass of wine or bacon or whatever. God instituted these things, but... Though God instituted them, there was a referent point to them. They had a purpose. They were pointing at something. Actually, better put, they were pointing at someone. Old Testament laws were a shadow, the substance of which was Christ. And so when Christ came, he fulfilled the Old Testament laws. So so here we have the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament people of God saying, okay, obey God's law, and they couldn't. And then you have Christ, the ultimate people of God, the ultimate Israel. He comes and he obeys. That's why it's so important in theology to say that Jesus fully obeyed God. Why? Because he had to as the new Israel. And in his full obedience to all of the laws, he now fulfills them. And so the image here is is laughable, okay? We're supposed to sort of laugh, all right? Just imagine for a second if you're outside with someone, probably not now, so think June, okay? You're, You're outside with someone and the sun's out, okay? Someday we'll see the sun. And you're outside and imagine talking with someone, but they're not talking to you. They're not even looking at you. They're just talking to your shadow. Do you know how ridiculous that would be? How odd that would be? Well, that's what these teachers were doing. They were talking to shadows, thinking that the, the, the real thing was in the shadow when Christ is standing here all along saying, stop talking. Like, no, the, the shadow is just pointing to me. And that's what those laws were all about. Now, for us, I, I think this warning is the probably the clearest and most present danger for the evangelical church, for the Christian church. There, there, there are a lot of temptations, a lot of things that might try to get the church off of her, her mission, to try to kind of steer her off her course. There's many things I suppose we could list. I, I contend that this is probably the most preeminent way in which the church can drift from Christ. Legalism and legalism's best friend, judgmentalism. Did you guys notice the warning? There in verse 16. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you. The whole idea of judgmentalism. So, one of the reasons why I think this is, why legalism is such a slippery little booger, is that it masquerades as zeal for truth, doesn't it? It's saying, I'm right and I want other people to know that I'm right and I'm zealous for the truth. I'm zealous for God. Why can't everyone else see it the way I see it? I mean, no church on their website goes, hey, look at us, we're legalistic. This is wonderful, come hang out with us. No one does that. It happens over time. And so legalism as a sort of a philosophy, then gets an emotion. I think that's what judgmentalism, judgmentalism is the emotion of a legalistic heart. Judgmentalism is the sort of critical attitude that says, if you disagree with me, I am going to cut you and condemn you. How dare you? And so legalism and his best friend, judgmentalism, they hang out all the time. And they are, I think, probably the most toxic cultures a family could have, a church family could have, or any community could have. And it's a rotten practice. I think one of the great gifts that God gives to the church is the gift of disagreements. Okay, hear me out. I think we've had two years of disagreements, so you're going to go too soon, Stephen, all right? But hear hear me out, okay? Okay. I think disagreements are a wonderful gift that God gives us. And here's my reason. How else is God going to root out the sin of legalism and judgmentalism unless we disagree? When there is a disagreement on something, on, a let's say, a debated issue, how else are we going to be able to stay friends and encourage each other when we just don't see eye to eye? Or how else will we be able to repent of our sins of judgmentalism if they never manifest? I think disagreements can be a wonderful thing. A, a wonderful thing that, that, that when something happens, and, and it can go both ways. It's not just the strict Christian, right? It's the loose Christian that can judge the strict, right? It can go both ways. It, it really doesn't matter. J- judgment will kind of inflame any human heart in order to look down on someone. But when that happens and you sense that in your heart, looking down on someone, what a great opportunity to seek Christ, to repent of that sin. We don't I don't think talk a lot about we've got our sort of typical sins we talk about. Oh, but judgmentalism, judging others. It's a toxic sin. And that's the third thing he points out. He says, don't judge one another based on food and drink. Then third, the third warning. Look at verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. Grows with the growth that is from God. So the the sort of third way in which we can just, in our zeal, get kind of drift away and doing all sorts of craziness is, he's, he is his warning is not to be disqualified. E- evidently, in some ways they were saying, oh yeah, you have Jesus, but you need something deeper. A, a, a greater mystical experience. Maybe even some mystical experiences with angels. Or you need some a sort of ascetic practice, right? You need to bring some pain into your life in order to get some spiritual gain. So so you could think of maybe these teachers like crossfit instructors, right? Those people who just yell at you, well, you want to you can you can't get strong unless you get some some pain in your life. And so they're saying, "Hey, you want to get go deep with Jesus? You need some pain." Now, I think we've seen this. this whole idea of, of having some deeper mystical experiences, or even maybe even going through some painful experiences in order to gain Christ in a new way. I think we see this even in, a, in the modern church. Uh, personally, I've been in a room with brothers and sisters who are more of the charismatic. And they are my brothers and sisters and they very much meant well but I have sat in a room and they promised me that if I just spoke in supernatural ways and just had prophetic visions then and only then would I truly go deeper with Jesus. If I had that private prayer language or that supernatural experience then I can really go deeper with Christ. And so Paul warns them. Paul Paul warns them to just be careful with all of that wacky stuff, right? I mean, there are some churches in Northern California that go out to the grave, hang on to grave sites, and try to suck the blessing of dead Christians. Now, that's, we just write that down, you're like, that's ludicrous. Well, these are normal Christians who want deeper Christianity, and they get swept away in it. Why? Why? Because of the promise of a deeper, ecstatic, mystical, supernatural experience. It's no, no use judging them. We all could do that. Our spiritual zeal can lead us into poor outcomes, misinformed outcomes, our hunger for God can sometimes outrun God's word. And it can puff us up then, doesn't it, right? Look at this experience. Oh, you haven't had that experience? Oh, I've had that experience. Ooh, awkward. And so Paul says, no, it, th- th- those sorts of things, when you, when you elevate experience as the penultimate, well, all it does is puff you up. And Paul says, no, what's most important isn't your puffed up head. What's most important is that you are metaphorically connected to the true head, Christ Jesus. That's where spirituality is found. So that's the third warning. Then verse 20, the fourth warning. Paul says, and warns them not to submit to false wisdom. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. These were things that people were saying, which all refer to the things that perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That, that whole phrase, indulgence of the flesh, is shorthand for sin. They can't stop sin. So Paul says, I mean, don't, don't submit to these lies, these falsehoods. And there really is a, a sort of tragic irony in all of this. You see, these teachers were encouraging deeper revelations, deeper experiences, a more robust Christianity. And the tragedy is that this is so rotten that this sort of self-made religion, which is what Paul calls it in verse 23, it, in the end of the day, has no power, does it? It has no power to stop sin. Like, all all self-made religion can do is stop a symptom. You you worship money? Self-made religion can teach you how to give your money away. You you worship your beauty? Self-made religion can teach you how to get all the mirrors and get them out of the house. You lie? Gossip? Well, self-made religion can... Teach you how to staple your mouth shut. And those might be useful. And in the short run, they might even be helpful. Oh, but I've known some people who were poor and they worshiped money. I've known people who haven't verbally said anything negative, but you could just see it in their hearts, can't you? All self made religion can do is scrub a behavior. It has no power to scrub the human heart, does it? And this is the irony. This is the sad irony of these teachers. They're working so hard to follow the rules. They're putting pain in their life in order to gain spiritual experiences. They have all of this zeal. They want God. They want truth. They want this mystical experience with God. They want to unlock God's word. You ever watch CBN, and they just promise to unlock God's secret codes that, and then if you just look out and there's a blood moon that, oh my goodness, that's what this means. And they, they do kind of, uh, I call it newspaper hermeneutics, right? They open up the Bible and they go, oh, Russia's moving here. That means that revelation, right? Well, all of it comes from a zeal and a desire, I think, to want to go deeper with God, to unlock what God is doing so that we can unlock our spiritual potential. But it's all wishful thinking, Paul says. It gains us nothing. We might have great intentions, but great intentions don't always lead to perfect or great outcomes. So those are the the four ways not to go deeper with God. I'm going to give you one. One way to go deeper with God, look back at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This this past week, the one and only Aaron Sherwood told me that the main controlling verb in this section is in verse 6. It's that verb, walk in him. Okay, I spent Two or three hours on Thursday trying to prove him wrong. I wish I had those two or three hours back. He's exactly right. The the main verb is to walk. It's an imperative. Walk in Christ. And notice right before that verb, it says, therefore as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord. As you've received Christ as the Lord of your life. Christ isn't just the Savior. He's the Lord, right? Right? What God has united, let no man separate. Christ is both Savior and Lord. He's the Messiah and he's Lord. After you've received him, then the imperative is to walk in him. Now, that's sort of a weird thing to say. What do you mean by walk with him? Well, it was a Hebraism. And it was shorthand not just for one thing to do among many, right? It's not like, well, today I'm going to walk with Christ. Tomorrow I'm going to walk. I'm going to slow down and I'm going to sit with Christ. That's not That's not the idea here, right? Right? Walking with Christ was a sort of shorthand for all of my life. So he's saying, in all of your life, when you wake up, when you go to bed, and everything in between, all of it is meant to be walked with Christ. That he is supposed to saturate your entire life. His lordship over your life is supposed to trickle down into the totality of your life. And so that's the imperative, that's the command. Walk in Christ. That's the secret sauce of true spirituality. Walk in Christ. But Paul doesn't just leave us. Paul then gives us four participles which a participle, grammatically speaking, helps to um, explain how you accomplish a verb. These are verbal parti- This is verbal participles. And so he gives us four participles. You can, you can see them right there in verse 7. Rooted, built up, Established, abounding in thankfulness. Participles. But interestingly enough, the first three, they're passive. Me- meaning that something outside of this church is acting on them, something inside of them. So God roots, God builds, God establishes. The church, like us, are passive in that. God brings that work. But then the is not passive, it's active. So there's one thing we're supposed to do. We're supposed to walk in Christ. How do we do that? One thing. Having been rooted and established, having in Christ, what are we to do? We are supposed to abound in thankfulness. Okay, so there's, there's one thing I'm going to say that you need to do today. There's, there's one thing, if you really want to walk with Christ, there's, there's one command that be thankful be grateful that's what walking in Christ looks like it looks like forming gratefulness in your life for all that God has done God rooted you established he built you up you received Christ now be thankful for all done and that's how Paul fleshes this whole idea out so i'm just going to give you really quick three kind of truths in our text that should, or that we ought to, or that ought to fuel our gratefulness to God. All right? Three truths. First, we see it in verse 10. It says that Jesus fills us. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, you know, the space between my organs Jesus, like, inhabits. That's not what's going on here, okay? Again, metaphors here. But though it's a metaphor, it's still kind of cryptic, right? What does it mean that Christ fills us? Verse 11 and 12 explains it. Verse 11 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in a powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So remember, Paul is speaking largely to Gentile Christians who themselves haven't been circumcised. And I think that's why he's saying, you also, you also were circumcised. He's talking metaphorical, kind of spiritual language here, saying you weren't physically super, uh, circumcised or circumcised in a sense when you, in faith, trusted Jesus. And I think it's pointing to Jesus on the cross here, Right? The circumcision you receive because of Christ's work on the cross. A spiritual circumcision that Jesus brings to us us to not be dominated and ruled by sin anymore. That's the whole idea of cutting off the flesh. The power of sin has been broken. So if I could just sum up, and this is technical, sort of Pauline uh, to try to figure out how this all works together. I promise you that. But but the logic, as simply as I can kind of communicate it, is this. right. Instead of stripping off a piece of our flesh in physical circumcision, in Christ we have been stripped away. We have that circumcision. That sin has been because of Jesus' death on a cross. And then Paul goes on to say, okay, well, that faith that faith, and then he, he, he moves from circumcision and he starts talking about that we have been fully immersed in Christ. And we're alive now in Christ. We've been immersed in his death and are now alive Allah, through his resurrection. So, so the whole idea of being filled with Christ is a sort of short for all that Christ has done, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the totality of his ministry can be yours. That life can fill your life. That's how mystically close and unified you are when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You are with Christ. His life, his death, resurrection, ascension, yours. That's what it means that you can be filled with Christ. Isn't that amazing? Paul wants us to meditate on that and just be grateful for that mystical communion that we can have with Jesus Christ. Second, look at verse 13. This is the whole idea of forgiveness. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your uh, transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When I was in graduate school, uh, we had a cafeteria, and in the cafeteria there was this little box. And in this box had every student's name sort of on a ledger. And so you could grab coffee, you could grab some food, and you would write on your name, you know, $2 cup of coffee, right? And you had this ledger. And it would, fortunately, it would grow throughout the semester, right? And the point is, at the end of the semester, you would pay off that IOU. That really is, I think, the, the sort of imagery here. It's the idea of you, a sort of debt that needs to be settled. But it's not a debt to just any. It's not a debt to a school. The idea here is that there's a debt that we owe to God. And this whole idea, this whole imagery, goes way back to the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, you have God creating man in his own image setting man and woman you know in the garden saying play enjoy but just don't eat of that one tree and so adam kind of here's the contract adam signs the contract we will obey god fully finally forever and then in adam all of us have signed that contract we've signed the contract we will obey god follow him he is lord and so we sign that IOU. And yet, we see it in Adam and Eve. They fail. They fall. And then we see it in our own life, right? And the older we get, the more breasts we take, the longer the ledger grows. The more debt we owe to God, the more sins fall on the ledger. And they grow, and they grow, and they grow, and they grow. And yet, here we have a debt owed to God for our disobedience, but here we have a reminder that we are forgiven of that debt because of Jesus' work on a cross. you see that there? Canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demand. So the second Adam comes, Jesus Christ, who obeys perfectly, and yet instead of who had no IOU? But on the cross, he then does something. He says, I'm gonna take all of the IOUs, all of the debt, all of the ledgers of humanity, and I'm going to pay them in my death for them. You want to walk with Christ? You want to be grateful? Meditate on your forgiveness. And never stop meditating on that reality. The last, and then we're going to be done. The last sort of imagery or the thing to to meditate on in order to increase our gratefulness to God is in verse 15. He dismantled the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In him. So again, this is said this is 2,000 years ago. In the ancient days, just think about this. Let's say the Romans sent off a general with an army to go fight the Goths. And they win. They're victorious. And so what would happen is the general would come back with the soldiers. They would come back and there'd be this just victory processional. Right? And in the front, you've got the general. And everyone's you know, you know, giving them their loyalty and the honor that was due for this victory and then right behind the general, you know, the leaders of this, this army, you had the soldiers. And they too would get cheers, excitement. You did it. Victory was yours. We won. But then after this, the soldiers, you had one more group. That were the captives. Those are the prisoners of war. Those were the goths. And they would come and there would be open shame for them. That third party. That's the imagery going on here. That Jesus, when he dies in resurrection, he defeats darkness. And so he's, he, there's a processional and everyone's cheering the world, the universe. God himself says in the, resur- uh, in the resurrection, yes, yes, you have won. And then the church, all those who are united to Christ are right there too. And their victory is because of Jesus' victory. And they're celebrating and there's honor due and it's wonderful. But then there's also a, a third group too shame, open shame, follows them, and that is the realm of darkness. They're captive by Christ and his life and death. So Christ is our victory over darkness. I talk to my kids a lot about darkness, because they're afraid of darkness. And they can't grapple with, in many ways, that God is is more powerful than darkness. And yet, not only is Christ our substitute, but Christ is in whom we have victory. On the, on the cross, he was victorious. L- Luther talked about it, that, that Satan thinks he's going to win, right? Satan's like, oh, I, I got Jesus right where I want him. I'm gonna, I trapped him, and he's going to die. And Satan's like, this is fantastic, I finally won. But little did he know, The crucifixion was Satan's mousetrap, wasn't it? It was right then and there in the death that Satan realized, uh uh-oh. In the death of, of God's Son was in the defeat of all darkness. You want to be grateful? Meditate on the victory of Christ. There's a lot of wrong ways to go about going deeper in your walk with Christ. In many, ways, I think Paul just, in many ways, I think Paul just gives us one tried and true way of going deeper with your relationship with God. It's going deeper with Christ. It's walking with Christ. It's being grateful for and never getting beyond Christ. The moment you say something like, oh, I've got the whole Christ thing figured out, I'm going into somewhere else, it's the very moment you need to be very careful Going deeper with God is going deeper with Christ. It's walking one foot behind the next, day in and day out, thinking about Christ, meditating on Christ, singing about Christ. As you engage culture, thinking through how Christ and the Christ-centered scriptures engages with that topic. Walk with Christ. That is the tried and true way of going deeper with God. Lord, I I just thank you for the realization that all of us at times and in different ways have been swept away in our zeal and yet, Lord, we pray that you would ground us, that we would be founded in Christ and Christ alone. We, we, We thank you for all that you're doing in our church. We pray, Lord, that we would in a deeper way, understand with gratefulness the true depths of Christ's ministry on our behalf. We love you and pray all this in your son's name. Amen.